Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Suleiman the Magnificent. He ruled over the mighty Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. He was a contemporary with Henry VIII of England, Emperor Charles and King Francis of France, four Renaissance princes doing their bit. And the reason I feel it's important that we put him in the bracket with the other three is that all too often we don't because of religion. He was Islamic, he was a caliph, he was the custodian of the two holy mosques. But as I've learned recently, in a really fantastic history book written by Christopher de Belague, he was a lot more like his European contemporaries I think traditional Christian historiography has made him out to be. Christopher is a writer, broadcaster, and investigative journalist. He's worked in Turkey, Middle East, South Asia for years, various brilliant publications. And he's now written the first volume of his history of Suleiman. You'll hear me talking about how much I love the book because I really did. And it's a very interesting history book. It's written in the present tense. It does feel like immersive drama, and yet it also feels like it's incredibly scholarly. You're going to love this new approach to writing history. It is also one of the most dramatic times in European history when a a power from the East threatened to conquer much of East and Central Europe, not least because he had this extraordinary admiral, Barbarossa, who's one of the great naval commanders of all time. And thanks to Barbarossa and other subordinates, Suleiman managed to conquer territory in Europe, Africa and Asia taking the empire to its greatest extent, dominating a swathe of land, really from the gates of Vienna right down to the Persian Gulf. I recorded this on location at the Chalk Valley History Festival, so it's noisy and wild, but it's worth it, folks. Stick with it, because Christopher is a brilliant scholar and a brilliant talker. And we should all know more about Suleiman and his empire in the 16th century. And make sure you stick around at the end of this podcast for a little bonus snippet of an exciting new project we're about to launch over here at History It. It's going to be great. I was brought up to see the Ottomans as the other. I was so struck by their Europeanness, the fact that they are as European as the Venetians, the Habsburgs that they face across the battlefield, the role of Christianity within the empire, lapsed Christians, um, people that converted to Islam. I mean, you just paint this picture of one of the great European Renaissance civilizations. Well, it is a remarkable thing. It's a truism that two historians can sit down and write about precisely the same events and precisely the same period of time, and yet write two entirely different books. The book that I chose to write was one that concentrated on the Ottomans' European calling at this time. 
And it is a time when the Ottoman Sultan can depart Istanbul after the new year, so in late March or early April, catching the last of the squalls, and then march northwards and march approaching a thousand miles and still be within Ottoman territory. And eventually he will get, as he does on two occasions, to the walls of Vienna. And that is where you're suddenly confronted with the other Europe, which is the Christian Europe, the Europe of the Habsburg Europe and of the German princely states. And that whole expanse of territory going through the Balkans, going through Hungary, huge areas to the left and right of that triangle are Ottoman territory. But then within the Ottoman superstructure, you have a great cacophony of different voices, many of them Christian. And one of the sort of major characters, well, Ibrahim, who was mentioned in that extract, was born in Albania. He was born Greek Orthodox, speaking Greek, but then he converted and became Grand Vizier. One of the more extraordinary characters is Alviza Griti, who is the yeah. illegitimate son of the Venetian Doge. And he is denied the chance to rise and become great in Venice because of his illegitimate birth. And so he says, well, what am I going to do? I'll go to Istanbul and I'll make my fortune then. And how? I mean, he yeah. becomes the biggest oligarch of the day. He becomes Ottoman viceroy in Hungary. He's a cross between Roman Abramovich and Lord Curzon. I mean, he's really amazing as a character to write about. And we've got Admiral Barbarossa, one of the great admirals, who, again, we don't think of in the European tradition. And yet he was Greek and he's one of the great admirals in Mediterranean history. But tell us also about Suleiman and his rise to power, because that's the thing that's endlessly fascinating in that culture. Well, it is very interesting. And the Ottoman way of dealing with the absence of primogeniture which creates its own imbalances and its own complications. Because according to the Ottoman theory of statecraft, the sons of the reigning sultan have an equal claim to the throne once the sultan goes. And what that leads to is fratricidal warfare between the sons. And the sons are being prepared for the throne by their respective mothers, very often far from the capital, having been given provincial governorships. And there they are, they're getting ready, they're looking at Istanbul to see when is this guy going to die and how do I react? At the same time as the Sultan's reign goes on, he starts to feel a little bit insecure because one of these sons may steal a march on his brothers and depose or kill the present Sultan in order to get to Istanbul first. And getting to the capital is, of course, vital if you want to become the next Sultan. Suleiman was helped in this respect, because his father, Selim I, or Selim the Grim, as he came to be known in the West, was a man of quite unfathomable bloodthirstiness who killed every male member of his family, including, we think, his own father, in order to smooth his own rise to the throne. And it was only with a stroke of good fortune that Suleiman, young Suleiman, then growing up and being the governor of a town in Western, what is now Western <coughs> Turkey, escaped a similar fate. But when Selim dies, we think of the bubonic plague, the messenger comes and Suleiman is summoned to the capital. Again, he thinks that his father might have something horrible in store for him and he may not actually be dead. He is in fact dead. He gets to the capital and there he confronts the fact that he's the sultan of an empire he hardly knows. He's got personnel and pashas and viziers that he doesn't know and who think that they can control him. And then the entirety of Christendom is looking and thinking, who is this guy and what's he going to bring? And how old is he approximately at this point? He's 26. 
Should we think about this being the apogee of Ottoman power? Yeah, this is why subsequent centuries called him the Magnificent. And this first part of his reign, which is the part that I deal with in the Lion House, is really the time when he's showing off his magnificence to greatest effect. He's, of course, has a lot of good fortune. He's inherited an empire that is functioning extremely well on all levels. The tax revenue is massive. The territorial expansion has been enormous. The legitimacy is unquestioned because now, thanks to Selim, his father, the empire extends all the way down from Arabia all the way up into the Balkans and then considerably to the west and to the east. And of course, Christendom is very divided. Not only are the Habsburgs and the French monarchy at war, but also the French cannot really turn their attention southwards fully because of their fear that Henry VIII might launch attacks from across the English Channel or seek to increase his French possessions. And at the same time, we have this huge eruption, which is the Christian Reformation, which is just starting to ripple through and to cause incredible internal ructions. So Suleiman comes to power with an enormous amount of following wind. And it's so interesting that we think of the Renaissance princes, we think of Charles of Austria and Spain, and we think of Francis, magnificent king of France, Henry VIII. But Suleiman is their contemporary and in many ways outshines them all. And yet I have not been brought up to put him in with that group. It's a prerogative of all historians to say, oh, the schools should be teaching my subject. And of course, I would bang that drum, and it's absolutely true, but we only have a certain amount of bandwidth, and children have to learn other things. However, it must be said that an element of world history is absolutely vital to a proper historical understanding. And I would say, if you're going to learn Tudor history at school, then you should also learn Ottoman history at school to see what is happening at the other end of Europe and to put Henry's England into a kind of wider context. And from that, you get onto this extraordinary, really existential battle for the monarchy of the world, which is waged between Suleiman and Charles V, the Habsburg emperor. And there is a very personal thing going on there. They both have been told by their advisors, also by God, that they are the heirs of the world monarchy. They are the heirs of the Roman Empire. And so there's not room for both of them. So Solomon, he marches up through the Balkans on two occasions to the walls of Vienna. He comes pretty close to taking the fight right to his enemy's capital. Suleiman does it once, and then a subsequent sultan does yeah. it later on. But Suleiman does it, and he gets twice really quite close to Vienna. And on one occasion, he gets actually up to the walls. And one of the problems, if you have such a vast empire, is that by the time you reach the walls of Vienna, and we know that the walls of Vienna are not simply a symbolic thing, when you take Vienna, then the road to a lot of Western Europe is open, the road to the Rhine is open, and ultimately the road to Paris. So it's an extremely important bridgehead that needs to be taken. But each time he comes close, it's September. The weather is turning, your enemy is within the walls, and your janissaries, your crack troops, are starting to get restless. They're not only getting restless, but they're also getting cold. And the supply lines are stretched. And the other thing, if you're the world emperor, like Suleiman is that half your empire is actually the other side of Istanbul. And those pesky Iranians could always take advantage of your 
being occupied at the walls of Vienna to come in and cause trouble in Anatolia. And that's something that Suleiman cannot entertain. He needs to be back in his capital to prevent anything like that from happening. The other thing about the Ottoman Sultan is he cannot depute these campaigns to an underling. It's absolutely vital that he be there because he is the talisman of the army and without him, the army just simply cannot function. He has to be there leading his army. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about Suleiman the Magnificent. More after this. Did you know that some of literature's greatest characters were real people? It's so fascinating, isn't it, that some of the Three Musketeers are also based on real soldiers. That Sir Walter Raleigh wasn't all that he's been cracked up to be. Chemist, poet, scholar, historian, courtier. He could have been great in all these different things. And that if your name is Dudley, you better watch your back. For the Tudors, each one of them took something from the Dudleys, either by working with a member of the Dudley family or, of course, by having one executed. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and I'm learning all this and much more, bringing you not just the Tudors, twice a week, every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. The Old Testament. It is one of the most influential collections of texts ever created. And this month on The Ancients, we are exploring some of the Hebrew Bible's most well-known stories, people, objects, and kingdoms and the influences that inspired them. From the Mesopotamian origins behind the well-known creation story of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood, to world-shaping prophets like Moses, sacred artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant, and the archaeology of Temple Mount. Stay tuned for new episodes of our Old Testament series out every Thursday this June on The Ancients from History Hit. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So I would like to know more about how the Ottoman Empire works. What role does Islam and religion play under Suleiman? Islam is hugely important to the legitimacy of the state, and Suleiman is the vice-regent of God. So his entire impulse is guided, along with the other things like lucre and money and territory, it is all guided by this idea that there's something called the golden apple, which is this mythical state of sublime wealth and of pleasing God. And this golden apple lies deep in Christian territory in Christendom, and that he's been placed on this earth in order to grab hold of that golden apple. And this is what drives the Janissaries forward, and there are prophecies to that effect. But at the same time, a very large proportion of his subjects are not Muslim at all. They are Christians, and they remain Christian. And the Sultan feels very strongly that he is also the protector and the guarantor of the safety of these Christians and to a lesser extent of Jews. There were a lot of Jews in Istanbul. There were a lot of Jews elsewhere in the empire. So Suleiman has this dual role. He has to uphold Islam and also he has to protect the Christians and other minorities. And he would have regarded that as very much consistent with each other. There is no discrepancy between the two. But this paints a very different picture than the one you get from Habsburg Spain, for example, where the rising tide of intolerance has led to the beginnings of the Inquisition, the expulsion and forced conversion of vast numbers of Muslims, the expulsion of Jews, many of whom took refuge in the Ottoman Empire. And so you have very much a stark contrast at this stage in the Ottoman adventure, which is of an Islam that is also protective of its minorities. And you see that going through the Balkans. You see Balkan towns that are overwhelmingly Christian that are at the same time loyal. And what the Sultan brings is he brings stability, he brings the rule of law, he brings good roads, he brings, in short, good government. And he can offer glittering careers to people from all different creeds. So... The question of the Janissaries is very interesting and instructive. The Janissaries are beholden to the Sultan. They owe their loyalty to the Sultan. And they are a levy that the Ottoman army levies when it goes into a new territory. This is coercion. This is coercive. This is not voluntary. But what happens to these boys that are levied from Balkan populations that have just been captured is that they get taken off to Istanbul, they get converted, they don't have any say in the matter, they get converted and then they get offered a path to preferment that is absolutely remarkable. And some of them end up Grand Vizier and some of them end up leading the army and then interestingly a lot of them bring their relations to Istanbul and they say all you do is accept the snip and convert, and then all of this can also be yours. And so a lot of them follow that path. And this is one of the kind of major bones of historical contention now, 
in places like Hungary is the extent to which people did convert and did voluntarily convert because, of course, it has a bearing on today's kind of nationalist temper and also the general feeling which is anti-Muslim in a lot of Eastern Europe today. Just enlarge on um, Get the Snip. It's not difficult to become Muslim, but circumcision is definitely part of the ritual. It's something that happens to every Muslim boy. And in the Lion House, you will find a loving description of the circumcision ceremonies of three of the Sultan's sons, which are an enormous opportunity for the Sultan to display his wealth. And we're lucky enough to have four or five extraordinary eyewitness accounts of that 14-day ceremony, which completely takes over Istanbul, all the Ottomans' foreign interlocutors are invited. They're told you have to be there in the tribunes, sending back your reports just to show how magnificent we are. So Suleiman, he establishes his royal hold on government. He advances into the Balkans. It's difficult against the Habsburgs. But his, as you mentioned, probably least successful episode actually is heading east. He comes close to being unstuck as he marches against the Iranians. Yes, there's a, there's a remarkable, and as a historian, it's an absolute joy to write about Ibrahim Pasha, who is the convert who becomes Grand Vizier, the Sultan's bosom buddy, also is in charge of the army, is sent east to deal the Iranians a blow. Because, of course, at the same time that Europe is undergoing the Reformation, Islam is sundering in a definitive way between Sunnism and Shiism. And Sunnism is now increasingly associated with the Ottoman Empire, with Suleiman and his apparatus, and Shiism is increasingly associated with Iran and the Shah there. And also the Shah keeps coming in through the back door into the Ottoman Empire and trying to take territory and generally being a nuisance. So Ibrahim is sent out there. There's quite a lot of internal politics going on within the army. There's a very bad feeling within the army because the sultan isn't there. Ultimately, the sultan does come out about a year later and there's a march into northern Iran where the Shah, he disposes of a tiny force compared to this sort of massive Ottoman army. But he draws them in, in classic Persian fashion, deep into the heart of the Persian plateau and then he disappears and he lets winter do the rest. And there's a terrible snowstorm at Sultania, which is in northern Iran, where thousands of Turkish Ottoman troops are simply frozen to death. An Iranian poet passes by afterwards and he comes across these thousands of dead bodies. And the poet says, and, and I asked, who was responsible for the death of all these Ottoman soldiers? And the breeze replied, it was I. After that, the remnants of the army have to get to Baghdad, which is the ultimate objective, and they have to cross the Zagros Mountains in order to get there, and they're being harried and they're being pursued by Iranian horsemen on their fleet ponies that just come in and then they launch attacks and then they move away. All the while the snow is falling, the passes are impassable, all the ordnance has to be left behind. It's a complete disaster. And this is the moment where Ibrahim Pasha, who has just risen so high and so meteorically, feels that he may be in trouble. And so he has to deflect the blame for this disastrous campaign onto the quartermaster, which he does. And the quartermaster is executed in the month of Ramadan in the main market square in Baghdad. And that night, we know this because the chronicler tells us, that night Suleiman is asleep and the quartermaster approaches the sultan in his bed and he unwinds his turban and he 
winds it around the Sultan's long swan-like neck and he pulls it tighter and tighter. And when Suleiman awakes, he knows that an injustice has been done and he says to himself, my vizier, my beloved Ibrahim Pasha will not survive another 12 months. He overreached. Another theatre of operations, the Mediterranean, I mentioned earlier. I was astonished by the extent that the Mediterranean is an Ottoman lake at this point. Absolutely. I mean, Barbarossa, the great pirate, he was of Turkish origin, although his grandfather was a Greek Orthodox priest from the Isle of Lesbos. He becomes a free agent, takes over Tunis and Algiers. And then Suleiman looks at himself and says, well, we need all of that to be ours. And he's of Turkish origin, so let's bring him in. So he's brought in, he's given the Grand Admiralship of the Ottoman Empire. And he, after the Sultan himself, becomes the second best known Ottoman of the time. He sows terror into the hearts of every Christian who is afloat on the high seas. And we have an extraordinary account by one of his shipmates written in very kind of rough and ready demotic Turkish that has survived to this day. So we know a great deal about these extraordinary campaigns that they went on. And they went into Iberia and they launched raids in order to get Muslims who were being oppressed there by Habsburg Spain and were being forced to convert. And they bring something like 40,000 Muslims across the water into North Africa and they resettle them there and they repopulate them there. Pope Clement, he can't even go to his daughter's wedding because he's so terrified of leaving Italy because of Suleiman's men. Barbarossa, he wants a present for the Sultan and he comes ashore, he's heard that there's a famous beauty called Giulia Gonzaga who lives in a castle just inland from Sperlonghi in Fondi. And he comes ashore at night and he has excellent intelligence and he spends the night riding up to the castle at Fondi and he gains entrance to Julia's castle. And Julia is awoken by an attendant and she slips out in her night attire and she leaps on a horse and she gets away. And so Barbarossa is thwarted in this and so he gives vent to his fury on a couple of monasteries and then he gets out and by the time the Italians get themselves together he's halfway across the ocean. He's unbelievably agile, it's such an extraordinary use of naval power. Where does it all go wrong for the Ottomans? Where you leave it, you think these people are undefeatable. Well luckily enough for Suleiman by the end of his reign, and he reigned for well nigh 50 years, the Ottoman Empire is really at a kind of plateau in terms of reach, influence, wealth, and good governance. The machine is just purring. It's absolutely extraordinary. The coffers just keep being replenished. By the end of his reign, there's probably a sense that he's reached the natural limits of expansion. The sequel to The Lion House will be the middle third of his reign, where he starts to standardize Ottoman life and become in kind of architectural and tactile form, a proper imperialist. That means he has the greatest mosque builder of all time, Mimar Sinan, is brought in and he's the Christopher Wren of the Ottoman Empire. He builds extraordinary mosques, the length and breadth of the country. Suleiman, he codifies the law system and all of that sort of thing. Where does it go wrong? How long can an empire last? I mean, all empires have to ebb and flow. Essentially, the process of territory being chipped away starts in the 17th century, but the decline is very long and drawling. And it's not really until 
the late 18th and 19th century that the internal kind of dysfunctions of the Ottoman Empire become apparent and the rise of nationalism among those subject peoples that we were talking about starts to make itself apparent. And it is those nationalisms ultimately that are the death of the Ottoman Empire. That was a brilliant rampage for the first third of Suleiman's career. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John. We will have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone. All right, folks, we got to the end of that podcast. Now I can share the real news with you, the big stuff. And that is, it's the thing you've all been waiting for, more podcasts. We've got another podcast dropping, and this time it is the greatest and best. It is American history hit. You listen to Dan Snow's history hit, now... It's the American history hit. And like America, in relation to Britain, it is bigger, it is better, it is shinier, and it has a more potent nuclear arsenal. It is presented by one of my best friends, a great colleague, a terrific American history lover and broadcaster. It is Don Wildman. He's a legend in America and around the world. There are clips of children pretending they are Don Wildman on caving expeditions all over YouTube. And he is a massive, massive history fan. He's going to be covering the whole of American history. We've got pre-colonial America. We've got independence, that sad chapter in American history. We've got slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, civil rights, the gold rush, the space race, and beyond. And what happens in America, whether we like it or not, shapes the lives of every single person living on this planet and those yet to be born. That is a fact. Don Wildman is going to be the man to take us through that history. It's the thing I'm most excited about since I launched history hit all those years ago. And the reason I know Don, I'll just tell you this before I introduce him, the reason I know Don Wildman is because he was a co-host with me, a co-presenter, but we weren't on camera ever at the same time. The American version had him in it, the British version had me in it. So he would do his bit talking about the guillotine in Paris, or the muck of London's medieval streets, and I would go on straight after him and just copy everything he did. It was a very formative experience for me, I learned a lot. Don, great to have you, welcome to History at Family, buddy. Well, thank you very much, Dan Snow. You've given me so much to measure up to in life. And here we go again. My goodness. I'm thrilled to be here. It's really an interesting endeavor you've uh, embarked upon. I've been watching it for years. Imagine me standing on the shores of America watching that Dan Snow do his thing over there in, in the UK, building a company, building a legendary podcast, and then you got on a ship and sailed over here, and I'm welcoming you at the pier. Then taking your job. Well, hang on. I'm not sure we've agreed on that, buddy. The reason that I knew you'd be great on this podcast is because every time I catch up with you, you are scouring the United States of America. I mean, you've been from the tip of Maine to San Diego, and you've kind of already seen all of these places where American history is forged. Ask my friends and family. I am dreadfully interested in American history and can drone on endlessly about it. Thank God we've got interesting experts, fascinating personalities. I'm here to help them tell the story of a great land and a complicated history. You know, we're uh, approaching the 250th anniversary of America. It comes in 2026. God willing, this podcast is a run-up to that event. I'm involved in all sorts of organizations who are very nervous about Americans getting it, understanding all the different elements that created this land in all of its various, you know, iterations. But that's the mission of this show, to take you down every nook and cranny of American history, the big stories and the small ones, and to get you under the skin of America. I think one of the greatest lies that we tell ourselves is that America doesn't have much history. It's so recent. I love American history. It is packed 
and it matters. You've got some good episodes coming up. You've got Midway, which I always love. Tell me about the few that you've got coming. Well, we started off with World War II. I mean, in the recording of this thing, we started in World War II and we went to uh, the Hollywood blacklist. You know, I mean, that's how much of a left or right turn you take from this thing. It's all over the board. We covered the Declaration of Independence. I saw that title on my worksheet and thought, oh, my God, the Declaration of Independence, where do you begin? The thing about these stories is they're big, splashy titles, but you can always find this interesting door to follow into it. Interviewed a man named Byron Williams about its radical aspect, you know, the radical Declaration of Independence and how it really stands on its own two feet as one of the great documents right there next to the Magna Carta, if I may be so bold, of world human history. We're doing the space race. We're doing, I mean, pretty much throw a dart in the history of America and we'll get there. You got one about Oak Ridge, which is so interesting. Not long after I I worked with you, I went to Oak Ridge in an epic journey that took me to the Trinity site eventually. But it started in, in Manhattan, actually, in the offices of the original Manhattan Company and the building anyway, and then ended up going down to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is a classic story that most Americans either never knew about or have forgotten about. And yet there is that once secret city still down there drawing its electricity from the TVA that it was meant to do and creating something in secret. I mean, these are incredible stories that had to do with espionage and all sorts of technology being invented on the spot and then put into action just right around the corner. I mean, the bold endeavors of America are legion. And once you start Digging in, you find out how tied they are to the whole international story beyond. Let's take a listen to that clip of your Oak Ridge show right now. It is 1939, and Franklin Roosevelt has just received a letter. It includes a warning that the Nazis might be developing a new powerful bomb, which if carried by boat and exploded in a port might very well destroy the whole port, together with the surrounding territory. The letter is from Albert Einstein. America has to act fast. What follows is the creation of a secret city, built on quiet rural land in eastern Tennessee. This is the story of Oak Ridge, the secret city which helped build the first atomic bomb. lived in a house right next to the store. The dates as I remember it in 1942 around August, government representatives came in and told uh, Dad and all the people in the area, you will be out of here by Thanksgiving. Okay, I'm June Adamson and I came to Oak Ridge in 1943. We didn't like it one bit, but um, on the other hand, I was glad to get out of Salt Lake City. I grew up in Salt Lake, and I always wanted to leave there. So he said that in the Manhattan Project in World War II, that the atomic bomb was conceived, designed, built, and tested in 28 months. And I'd been here in Oak Ridge for over 30 years. You could knock me over with a feather.
When they built Oak Ridge, was there anything there to start? Oh, yeah, it was a rural community, half a dozen small communities there. Robertsville, the actual school for Robertsville is still being used by the Robertsville Middle School. In fact, some of those communities still have annual reunions every year. So it was a rural area, about 3,000 people on 1,000 farms, and they had to leave just in a matter of days in order to make room for the Manhattan Project. They were just told the war is coming. See you later. You have to realize that that was something back then that everybody wanted to help. The whole mentality was, let's do something to stop all this killing and end this war. So they wanted to do anything they could to help. Even Bill Wilcox, who was a historian before me and was a chemist during the Manhattan Project, when he graduated from college and went to look for work, he would only accept work that was war work. And that was the mentality back then. Everybody wanted to help. I mean, come on. Thousands of people dying, and you know, yeah. 60 million people died during that war. It's the largest one we've ever had. Tell me about the reaction to the bombs being dropped. When the war comes to an end, how aware are the workers and the people of Oak Ridge that they had everything to do with creating these bombs? Well, what happened is they got the notification the same day. In fact, they sent out press releases on the same day that Little Boy was dropped. So the world knew it as soon as possible. And the people at at Oak Ridge first learned what was happening by the press releases and by that information. A good way to understand that is there's another Calutron girl, Ruth Huddleston, who was working that day. And when her supervisor told her, told all of them what had happened and that Oak Ridge had made the uranium for that bomb, She was happy because she said her boyfriend was in Germany and had already told her he was going to Japan. So she thought, well, I've saved his life because he was going over there. And then she got home that night and she saw uh, in the paper and heard on the radio how many people had been killed. And she just said, oh, no. She got so depressed she couldn't sleep for a week because she'd been part of actually killing that large number of people. Now, it had that effect on everyone, pride to end the war, but not pride about having killed so many people. You can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history. Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts. 